Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is an interview with David Goldfield. He is an American historian and a professor at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. And last month, I had a chance to get my hands on an advanced copy of his new book called The Gifted Generation. It's a book about Professor Goldfield's peers, basically, uh, the baby boom generation, and the benefits that they got from the U.S. federal government under the Truman, Eisenhower, and Lyndon Johnson administrations. I found it pretty fascinating, especially in light of current events, and I also found the experience of his generation to be, well, somewhat different from my own. But enjoy. All right, so Professor David Goldfield, thank you so much for talking with me today. Good to be here with you, Joe. Uh, Yeah, so I wanted to talk about your book, The Gifted Generation. And to begin, uh, how would you sum it up? You know, what, what is what is your elevator pitch for this book? In 2011, the Samuel J. Tilden High School class of 1961 held its 50th class reunion. And a few things that struck me about uh, my fellow classmates. Uh, one was that they were in most of them were in jobs that did not exist back in 1961. Uh, and second, and even more important for the book, uh, many of them uh, had the opportunity uh, not only to go to college, but to go to graduate school and to work in fields uh, that were supported by federal programs and federal policy. So I began to look deeper in, into the role that the federal government had uh, with the early baby boomers in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s uh, in paving a way for uh, the transition to a post-industrial economy and more specifically uh, to improve the lives of not only my classmates, uh, but of a much broader array of Americans, of women, of African Americans, and of immigrants than had ever existed in the history of this nation. Uh, in the book, you talk a lot about the Commonwealth idea. Uh, how do you define that? The Commonwealth idea is is, uh, is relatively uh, simple. It, it refers to the fact that uh, public policy should benefit the Commonwealth. In other words, should benefit everyone. It shouldn't be skewed to uh, one group or or another. Uh, even policies that are directed toward particular groups, uh, such as say civil rights for African Americans. Uh, fall under the Commonwealth ideal because they benefit all of us because they energize uh, and allow the greater participation of African Americans in the American enterprise. Okay, so in the book you walk through uh, three big, uh, three pretty consequential presidential administrations, and I was hoping to go through uh, each of them. Uh, let's start with Truman. What were the steps that uh, Truman ended up taking to kind of further that Commonwealth idea and expand civil rights and such? Uh, Truman was uh, one of the more interesting people that I've ever uh, come across. Uh, I, of course, I knew about him before the, the book, obviously, uh, but um, uh, delving into his papers and into his background uh, was certainly a re- revelation for me. He came uh, from Independence, Missouri, which really was a southern town and uh, had a background in the uh, Confederate States of America. In fact, uh, uh, his mother uh, once noted promly, uh, uh, very proudly that she had stomped on a copy of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, and that when uh, Truman became president, um, he offered his mom uh, 
a room, the Lincoln bedroom in the White House. And she said, I just as soon sleep on the floor. So uh, he came from a very Southern background. And yet he had this sense of fairness that uh, the least of us, uh, if the least of us is helped, the entire nation benefits. Um, And so one of his uh, first acts in office when he uh, took office after the death of Franklin D. Roosevelt in April of 1945 uh, was to uh, reinstitute the Fair Employment Practices Committee. And what that was, it guaranteed uh, fair employment. That is, uh, it protected uh, particularly African-Americans and women uh, from discrimination in the workplace. Uh, that did not fly uh, with the uh, Congress, which at that time was a Republican-dominated Congress. But he was the first president since Reconstruction uh, to promote civil rights. Uh, and also to send a civil rights package to to Congress. Uh, none of this passed, uh, but uh, it set a precedent for future administrations. The same with health care. Uh, Harry Truman wanted universal health care, uh, single payer universal, universal health care. We still don't have it. Uh, but uh, it was uh, his champion of the uh, of this particular policy. Uh, that inspired later presidents, uh, especially Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, to move forward on at least establishing Medicare, uh, which is, of course, not uh, a universal single-payer health care, but it certainly uh, was a major breakthrough in the health care field. And if you look at the other uh, aspects of the Truman administration, uh, such as immigration, uh, he fought against the discriminatory quotas. Uh, that discriminated against Southern and Eastern Europeans, the vast majority of whom were either Roman Catholic or or Jewish. Uh, There was a lot of pushback there as well because uh, these people uh, were, quote, um, different uh, from most Americans. They would have trouble assimilating. They may bring criminal elements. Well, the same arguments that we use uh, today against um, uh, Latin American immigrants uh, and some immigrants from Asia as well. Okay. Um, Something that I was curious about when I was uh, reading the book is the historiography around Truman. And this might be a bit outside of the scope, but his stock has kind of gone up among historians now. Uh, Is that true? Would you agree? I think any president's stock has gone up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Over the the past year when you compare it to the incumbent. But yeah, I I think um, uh, we're beginning to see. The thing with Truman is that he was the last president who did not have a college education. So he he did not come in uh, and he did not have a reputation for uh, being particularly intellectually brilliant. Uh, And he sort of had this um, tinny Midwestern twang uh, about him that people found either grading or, hey, uh, we're not going to take this guy very, very seriously. But when you look at his body of work and you compare him with uh, what came later in the 20th century, uh, particularly after Lyndon B. Johnson, uh, he definitely uh, is a good president by comparison. Uh, Excellent. After Truman, then we get um, Eisenhower. And in what ways was Eisenhower like a continuation or a break from uh, Truman's work? He was a continuation. In fact, Eisenhower, of all all the three presidents I covered, uh, was a revelation to me. Um, I 
my earliest memories were of uh, Eisenhower. I was too young to remember much of, of Truman. And uh, my earliest memories of Eisenhower were sort of a sort of like an uncle figure, nice, n- nice guy, sort of bumbling and not very articulate in, in, in public. Um, somebody's grandfather or uncle. Uh, but once you get into his papers and particularly his private correspondence with his brothers, especially his brother Milton, who was president of Johns Hopkins University, you begin to see the uh, intellectual uh, background of Eisenhower and, and how uh, well read he was and how thoughtful he was in looking at America's problems. He said on many occasions he loved to quote Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was his his idol. And he quoted Lincoln uh, stating that the government must do for the people what people cannot individually do for themselves. Uh, and of course, the government in the 1950s was very different from the government in 1861. Um, we were uh, in an industrial economy moving very quickly to a post-industrial economy. Uh, We had a baby boom. Uh, We had tremendous diversity in terms of uh, immigration. So uh, Eisenhower recognized that uh, in this very complex economy and this very diverse country, we needed an activist government uh, to have the backs of our people uh, and also to provide opportunities, not to guarantee results, but to provide opportunities. And so, for example, when the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik satellite in 1957, uh, Eisenhower's reaction was not to arm the U.S. against the possible assault from outer space uh, by the Soviet Union, uh, but rather to arm the people to boost human capital Uh, He uh, established the National Defense Education Act. He poured money into research and development. And many of my classmates, including yours truly, uh, benefited uh, from these measures that uh, Eisenhower took in the mid and late 1950s. Uh, His idea was that we, if we improve the educational foundation of our nation and we broaden its scope, to include everyone, uh, then uh, we will eventually be victors in this Cold War. We're kind of going through uh, presidential administrations at sort of a lightning pace here, but in this sort of post-war era of the Truman and Eisenhower administrations, uh, what were the prevailing attitudes about government um, among the American public? Like, had you gone out and done a poll or done a man-on-the-street interview what kind of attitudes would you have elicited from someone? That's a great question, Joe, because what I found was, uh, to my surprise, was that uh, most Americans uh, did not want much government. Uh, of course, they had understood that uh, the New Deal during the Great Depression, uh, government involvement was absolutely necessary to get the economy going again and people back to work. And of course, they realized that during World War II, uh, because of the uh, tremendous amount of um, uh, industrialization that it required and arms, as well as the cost, uh, government was absolutely essential uh, to coordinate uh, all of this. Uh, But once the war ended, uh, 
many Americans wish the war, wish the government to just go away or go back to what it was in the 1920s. Uh, and in fact, um, a good example of this was that in 1946, uh, the first election uh, after Truman took office in 1945, uh, the off-year election, uh, the Republicans took control of, of the Congress because people wanted to go back to where we were in the 1920s. Uh, and it, it's interesting that uh, all three presidents, Truman, Eisenhower, and Johnson, were often far ahead of public opinion. Uh, they were ahead of the public's desire for more government. Although by the time of the end of the Eisenhower administration in 1960, his last year uh, in office, um, a, a Gallup poll indicated that uh, over 70% of Americans viewed government in a very positive light because of what the Truman and Eisenhower administrations uh, had accomplished. Truman and Eisenhower, particularly Eisenhower, both understood, and Eisenhower articulated, articulated this uh, often and well, uh, that uh, America in the 1950s needed an active government, needed an umpire uh, to balance uh, the power of the large corporations uh, against the power of uh, individual workers and the general population, and also needed government uh, to um, help end discrimination against individuals because that harmed America. We wanted, uh, he wanted uh, everyone who could participate to participate in the American enterprise. Uh, I also want to get to Johnson because I think Johnson might be the most um, well-known uh, of the three presidents that you talk about in the book and to most readers and listeners and also like one of the most consequential, especially when it comes to things like, you know, healthcare and civil rights. So could you get into that? Sure. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, like Truman and Eisenhower, uh, came from a relatively poor background. And of course, that's not usually the case today with uh, most politicians and particularly uh, presidents. Uh, in fact, he was so poor, he had to drop out of college after his first year uh, to uh, take a job. The job that he took was uh, to teach at a Mexican-American school in South Texas. And uh, he thought he was fairly poor at the time, but he had no idea the depths of poverty and really the depths of discrimination that these Mexican-American students uh, confronted. Uh, and that really affected him and shaped his view on poverty. It shaped his view on race. Uh, it shaped his view on immigration. Uh, and when he uh, came to Congress as an aide to a, a congressman from Texas, he would sneak into the Senate chamber and listen to the great Louisiana Senator Huey P. Long talk about sharing the wealth uh, and how important it was that uh, everybody, every single person, have a stake in the American enterprise. Uh, just as Harry Truman uh, looked upon William Jennings Bryan uh, as uh, his paragon, as his model politician, the great commoner of Nebraska, and just as Eisenhower looked upon Abraham Lincoln uh, as his uh, political idol. So Johnson looked at Huey P. Long and wondered, uh, why can't 
we as the wealthiest country in the nation, why can't we help the least of us? And that was his effort in the uh, once he became a congressman and the United States Senate, except for one thing, Joe, mm-hmm. was the fact that he was from Texas. And if he ever strayed uh, from the segregationist line that white Southern Democrats had set down, uh, he would be an ex-congressman and an ex-senator. And he knew that. And it really bedeviled him. It bedeviled him for two reasons. Uh, Reason number one, he believed it was unfair. And reason number two, he had presidential ambitions. And he knew. And in fact, his good friend Eleanor Roosevelt told him so. If you're from the South, you can never be president. Uh, and it really tortured him. In fact, it tortured him to such a degree he uh, became a- addicted uh, to uh, sleeping pills uh, and uh, other uh, similar narcotics. Uh, so addicted that his mom uh, sent him a letter saying, hey, get off the stuff, Lyndon, uh, when he was uh, a senator. So he, uh, he, he suffered uh, because of that. But when he became president, he told one of his aides, uh, he said, free at last, free at last, uh, quoting uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, because man. Uh, he, he understood that he was free from Texas. Ah. Uh, and now he could be president of all the people. And he said, I'm going to out Lincoln Lincoln. And he certainly did with the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act, what I consider the two most important pieces of legislation in the 20th century. So one of the, I do want to get also to uh, the section of the book where you talk about your classmates, because I think that gives like a good narrative through line to a lot of it. But also one of the things that um, struck me is that something that's prominent here is a big shift in the Democratic Party in the mid 20th century, where they essentially kick out the segregationist. Um, That's one of the most consequential shifts in American politics um, ever. Like, how did that end up coming about? In 1948, uh, Harry Truman put forward a civil rights package uh, Congress, uh, and he insisted that the uh, at the Democratic National Convention in 1948 that the Democratic Party platform include a strong plank on civil rights. Uh, well, um, the Southern delegates uh, did not like this, and they walked out of the Democratic Convention in 1948. Uh, It's interesting that uh, when the Alabama delegation walked out, of course, they all that was left was just a sea of metal folding chairs in the auditorium, except for one chair where a young man uh, from Barber County, Alabama, uh, decided that he was going to stay with his president on civil rights. And that young man was George Wallace. So it's interesting from a historical perspective to see how that, uh, how that changed. And the uh, departing Southerners uh, formed the uh, Dixiecrat Party, uh, and their objective was they realized that they wouldn't get much votes in the North and West, but they understood that because Southern Democrats controlled key committees of Congress, that they would, in fact, uh, have a role 
in deciding who the next president would be uh, if they could garner enough states in the South uh, to throw that the election into the House of Representatives, because as we all know, you need a majority of electoral votes in order to be elected. But the popular vote is is meaningless in this regard. So um, that was their objective. Well, uh, of course, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, but uh, for the first time uh, since uh, Reconstruction, the Democrat, uh, the South was no longer solidly Democratic. Uh, and it broke a little bit in the Eisenhower years of 1952 and 1956, but mainly in the Upper South, uh, because in the Upper South, they were uh, interested in the uh, economic uh, policies of the Republican Party and uh, particularly uh, the policies of uh, General Eisenhower. But um, when uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, came uh, into office uh, in 1963, uh, the defection by Southern Democrats was already underway uh, because the Republicans began to shift right because as we know in 1964, their candidate was Barry Goldwater, and he voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, as the great Southern Mississippi writer Walker Percy said, if Goldwater, even if Goldwater had uh, voted uh, to collectivize all of the farms in Mississippi, the fact that he voted against that he voted against the Civil Rights Act uh, endeared him to the voters of that state and. Um, sure enough, he carried Mississippi, but not much else. Uh, so uh, Johnson won overwhelmingly, uh, but this uh, resulted in a stampede of Southern white voters uh, into the Republican Party. Uh, and we have what we call the great white switch. Uh, the Republicans uh, taking over the South uh, and the Democrats uh, confined primarily uh, outside of the South. And that pattern still obtains for the most part, although uh, states uh, like Virginia, for example, and occasionally North Carolina might slip from the grasp of Republicans, it's still a solid Republican South. And it became even more so through the 1960s and 1970s, and especially uh, during the Reagan era. So we've been talking about some like very high level stuff here, um, you know, presidents, massive political shifts, you know, all that. But throughout the book, you also talk about uh, the stories of individual people who are benefiting from the political and social change in the mid 20th century. So I wanted to ask you if there are a few of those stories that you wanted to uh, briefly highlight or talk about to like illustrate your point about, you know, the role of the federal government and the Commonwealth ideal and the like. Yes. Um, uh, one of my classmates was uh, Henny uh, Margolis Nuno, and uh, Henny uh, came from a very poor uh, background. In fact, uh, she had to go to work at the age of 14. Of course, we had uh, child labor laws, but uh, who obeyed them <laughs> to uh, to help out her, uh, her family? I mean, she uh, continued to go to high school, but she also worked uh, after school. Uh, and um, when she went to college, uh, she uh, was a biology major and had to be very careful not to break any of the equipment because the, the rule was that if you 
broke it, you had to pay to replace it. Uh, so um, she benefited from a federal uh, scholarship uh, to go to college. Uh, uh, she also benefited from grants uh, because the government supported uh, research in the biological sciences, among other disciplines uh, as well. Uh, she got married uh, and uh, had two children. And then her in 1972, her husband called her one afternoon and uh, told her he was leaving her. Uh, so here she was uh, with uh, two young children, no job. Uh, and to make a long story short, uh, Henny, uh, again, through the help of uh, federal uh, subsidies and uh, federal programs, uh, went on to graduate school. Uh, she not only received a doctorate in biology, but she uh, helped develop the rape kit that is used by, uh, well, law enforcement all over uh the U.S. and abroad as well. Uh, she uh, went on to hold over a dozen patents uh, in genetic research, and none of this uh, would have been possible or it would have been highly improbable uh, were it not for federal support. The federal government <laughs> didn't pass the test for her, uh, didn't um, make the innovations, but they created the opportunities and that's the key here. The federal government doesn't provide results, does not guarantee results. But what they did was provide the opportunities for uh, for Henny. Um, Harvey Gantt, uh, who uh, grew up, uh, as he put it, poorer than poor in uh, on an island off uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, he grew up, of course, in a segregated uh, environment. Uh, and one of the things that he realized he wanted to do uh, was to become an architect. Well, there are not too many African-American architects in the 1960s. Uh, and he realized in order to do this, he would have to leave the South. So he went to Iowa State University, uh, did not have a good experience there because everybody assumed that, well, he's African-American, therefore he must be on the football team. Uh, and he, he wasn't, he just wanted to study architecture. But one day it got to be 23 degrees below zero and he pined away for South Carolina. So uh, Clemson University had a very good architecture program. The problem was Clemson did not admit African-Americans. Um, but he pressed his case uh, with Clemson. They admit him, admitted him as an architectural student. Uh, and he became one of the leading architects in the in the Southeast uh, during the 1970s and in the 1980s. He became the first African-American mayor of, uh, of Charlotte. And all along the way, of course, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the, the scholarships he received, all from the support of the federal government. And these are just two of the stories I have in, in the book. I have... Um, a dozen, 15 stories of where the federal government was essential in providing the opportunities uh, to uh, allow these people tribute to the American enterprise. And they ran with it. But um, toward the end, you get to a big political shift in American life. Uh, what ends up happening post-Johnson administration? Several things. Uh, first, we had the Vietnam War, 
that uh, shook our faith in government. Uh, we had the civil disturbances, race riots, you can call them, in American cities, uh, which polarized uh, the races uh, even even more. And of course, we had Watergate uh, in the early 1970s. Uh, so the federal government uh, was not held in high regard. What we needed at that time, Joe, what we needed was a president to say, okay, we screwed up. Uh, Let's get on, back on track and, and let's rebuild and remake our government so that it truly works for all of us. Uh, instead, we got Jimmy Carter. Uh, and Jimmy Carter probably has had the best post-presidency of any president in American history. But as a president, uh, he had significant uh, shortcomings. He wanted to downsize uh, the government. Uh, he was much more concerned about inflation than in growing the economy. Uh, he talked about a malaise in the land. Uh, Americans did not want a diagnosis. They wanted action. They wanted improvement. They wanted progress. And Jimmy Carter did not provide for them. And he paved the way for Ronald Reagan in 1980. And Ronald Reagan um, was an avatar for the deregulatory state. Uh, he was an avatar for evangelical Christians who believed that uh, he would uh, end the cultural revolution, particularly as far as abortion uh, was concerned. Uh, he was an avatar of uh, people who uh, wanted to uh, downsize the government significantly. And actually what Reagan did uh, was pretty much ignore the uh, evangelicals. Uh, in his administration, uh, but uh, he very much uh, adhered to the deregulatory state. If you remember, uh, one of his uh, famous lines was that um, the nine most feared words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, never understanding the irony that he was presiding over that very government. So government became toxic. Now, you can say, well, where were the Democrats in all of this? The Democrats were supporting this because after the 1972 McGovern debacle, uh, two young Democrats, Gary Hart of Colorado and Bill Clinton from Arkansas, decided that uh, we're going to have to move the Democratic Party toward the center, away from the left toward the center. We're going to have to appeal uh, to the professional class. Uh, we have African-Americans uh, and Hispanics. They aren't going anywhere. They're not going over to the Republican Party, so we don't really have to worry about them at all. And as far as the white working class is concerned, uh, the white working class became the so-called Reagan Democrats. They were already defecting in the 1960s, so we can just write, write them off. Uh, so what you had, uh, uh, political scientist Theodore Lowy said the last Democratic president we've had was Richard Nixon. And although that's kind of amusing because, of course, Nixon no, was I've, Republican. I've heard that. In many respects, yeah. Yeah, in many res uh, uh, Nixon uh, continued the policies of um, Truman, Eisenhower, and, and Johnson. Uh, but then we had a break with Carter and uh, a more significant break with Ronald Reagan. 
And in 1996, when Bill Clinton was president, he, he, he said, the era of big government is over. Well, Clinton was about two decades off the mark because uh, this had begun in the, in the late 1970s. Uh, and in terms of uh, deregulating Wall Street, uh, in terms of uh, welfare reform, uh, he was really Republican light. And there really was not a significant difference between him and the George W. Bush administration uh, that followed, uh, nor, uh, for that matter, the Obama administration. To give you an illustration of the Obama administration, uh, Obama bailed out the banks, but not the folks who were snookered by the banks in terms of uh, these um, questionable mortgages. So what we had basically was Two, we had two major parties, the Democrats and Republicans, appealing to similar choirs, uh, the financial community and the Democrats uh, and the extractive uh, economy, the oil and natural gas industry, um, appealing to the Republicans. Uh, and uh, where was the average person? Where was the, so, the white working class? Where were African-Americans and Hispanics? Uh, in all of this, were they benefited? Did, did they benefit from these administrations? And the answer was no. In 1992, at the Republican National Convention, Patrick Buchanan uh, laid out uh, a proposal for the Republican Party. He said the Republican Party must address the common man. And, and that was rarely heard at re Republican conclaves, I can tell you that. Uh, he said that these folks are hurting. Uh, we have transitioned to a knowledge economy, a post-industrial economy, and we've left a lot of people behind. We need a government that addresses their needs. We need a government that will help provide the opportunities so they can move up and out into self-sufficiency. Well, this didn't happen in 1992, but in 2016, someone else with Buchanan's message <laughs> came along, and that, of course, was Donald J. Trump. Yeah, uh, who does not seem to be delivering on that type of thing at all. No, but like the interesting thing is we have Reagan re Redux. Uh, Reagan nominated um, as his uh, leading environmental a person in the cabinet, uh, Anne Gorsuch Burford, the mother of Judge Neil uh, Gorsuch, uh, who's uh, now on the U.S. Supreme uh, Court. Uh, and uh, basically, she wanted to dismantle the environmental reg regulations that the Nixon administration had put uh, into place. Uh, Donald Hodel, uh, Reagan's energy secretary, um, just totally disregarded the scientific evidence that the ozone layer was depleting and that there was global warming. Uh, his uh, his take on it, well, if that's the case, just use a higher grade of suntan oil. Uh, and uh, we have the same people, same people in the cabinet, in Trump's cabinet, as we had in Reagan's cabinet in terms of their uh, willingness and zeal to dismantle the very cabinet posts that they uh, were appointed to. So 
Uh, no, um, the white working class will discover that uh, for all the emotional compensation of draining the swamp uh, and of uh, emphasizing the attack on political correctness, uh, Donald Trump will do very little for them. So one last question. Um, what are the lessons, do you think, that you know, politicians, activists, uh, anyone who wants to be involved could take from, you know, the subject of your book, from the Truman and Eisenhower and Johnson administrations and the role of government in the mid-20th century? That an activist government, particularly in these times, uh, is absolutely necessary for empowering a broad span of the American people, all of us. Uh, whether we live uh, in the Rust Belt and the small towns with the opioid crises, or whether we live in the gleaming towers of our metropolitan areas, we need an activist federal government to level the playing field. We need an activist government to empower uh, not only uh, minorities, not only the white working class, but also our families, uh, women. Uh, we're the only major country in the world uh, without universal child care. We're the only major country in the world without federally uh, mandated family leave. Uh, this cannot continue to happen. The Republicans uh, advertise themselves as the party of family values. Well, uh, these are core family values. And so we need a government for the 21st century. And the best model for this government, it's not something we have to create from scratch. The best model is if we look back to the Truman, Eisenhower, and Johnson administrations and see how they governed and their belief in the Commonwealth ideal and their optimism about what the American people can do. Professor David Goldfield, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Joe. It was a pleasure. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Again, the book is The Gifted Generation. It's available now. And you can find more from Professor Goldfield at davidgoldfield.us. You can find me on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Also, we're on iTunes. Give us ratings and reviews like always. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.